All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now let's jump into the episode. Valora is the easiest way to send, swap, collect, and grow your crypto on the Valora blockchain. Download the app and start exploring dApps like JumpTask today at valoraapp.com forward slash empire. Welcome back to another roundup. You got Michael, Michael, and Vance. What's going on, guys? Glad to be here. Michael's one and two. Michael's one and two. Well, I wasn't sure if you're going by Mike these days. I didn't know if you ended up making a decision. I know you've been like debating. Michael's kind of convinced me. I'm in a transition phase here. Yeah. Wow. And Michael. Yeah. Yeah. Vance and Michael, I feel like we're supposed to give a disclosure now that uh, you guys are now investors in BlockWorks. How does it feel to be uh, not just co-hosts, but uh, co-owners of the Bell Curve podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Check the contract. I don't know if we're actually co-owners. Good to be be investors. And uh, yeah, I mean, you guys are growing super quickly. You've got a good team. So it feels good, you know. We, we've looked at a lot of different uh, startups and you guys are definitely growing quickly and it's it's impressive. So that's all yeah. to you. Really excited to be a part of it. How so professional of you. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe a little bit more gusto next time. <laughs> yeah, I really believed you there, Michael. Seriously. <laughs> really fired up to be along for the ride. Yeah. Now that once you made the sale, stop selling. <laughs> How does it feel to have us as investors now? We're really excited to have you about <laughs> 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 that was all about we're psyched. Yeah, no, it's about six months. Yeah, we're about I did a lot of good. Yeah. So um what do you guys pay attention to this week outside of uh our big announcement? What what what's what's interesting? There's a lot of funny stuff that happened this week. The uh the one that I don't think is on our uh, prep doc was uh, Aragon. <laughs> we were yeah. debating whether or not to get into that, but I saw you I saw you ripping some some fun tweets about it. So why don't you can you maybe give us a lay of the land on what's happening in Aragon land? Um yeah, so Aragon is a project that has developed various different software products. Um Aragon Court being one of them. It's funny because it's like uh you know it's supposed to be a court for like DAO governance, which is like obviously sorely needed in the wake of this this kind of blowing up, but they built a bunch of different things. They raised a bunch of ETH in, in an ICO in 2017, I guess it was, and uh, they've kind of been this beleaguered project that just spends money on kind of this, that, and the other thing, like crazy offsites, uh, stuff like that. Basically, there's a lot of allegations of like, you should just return this money to the community, and, and a few funds decided to, to try that tact over the past, I think, quarter. Uh, and so these funds bought a bunch of Aragon or accumulated a bunch of Aragon and they pushed to a vote with the DAO, um, you know, return the capital immediately. Let's kind of write the ship and, and you know, go on our separate ways. And uh, I think they did vote to, to and successfully pass this measure to return all the capital. And then right as it was about to happen, Aragon Foundation rugged the Aragon DAO, took all of the money and uh, called the... Uh, process of voting a majority of votes and and you know passing something a 51 percent attack on on democracy just absolutely 
hilarious that they would call it that. Also, like there is no 51% attack in something that isn't a base layer. Like it's just like called voting. Um, and, you know, I think a bunch of the funds that tried this got worked um, because like Aragon is now worth basically zero of the treasury is also worth zero. And Aragon Foundation also just looks terrible for rugging all of these people. Um, it's not really their money anyways. You know, like it's supposed to be a DAO until they didn't want it to be. Um, and yeah, just like the levels of, of like cope and saltiness on the timeline this week were, were unbelievable. Um, it really felt like people probably maybe bought a little bit too much ANT and it just didn't work. Uh, and you know, it's just a friendly reminder that like, this is not TradFi. And also like, don't try to real, real fair value, uh, raid treasury that can unilaterally move the funds on you. Like that feels like something that comes up in the first hour of diligence when you think about this project. But curious to hear what you guys think. Just is an overall shit show in my opinion. I don't really have, I'm not really sure if I have a super specialized take here. I did see, um, you know, Arca, you know, they proposed the buyback basically because the FDB of Aragon, I guess, is trading below the book value of the treasury. I, I was, I, I guess I should have looked this up before I just went to, but. I would guess most of that treasury is paid up of the native token anyway. So I, I think it's probably, I don't, I don't know about that as an investment strategy for frankly, for projects at this stage. Um, but yeah, I think it's just, it's kind of unmasking some of the decentralization theater that happens, especially at early stage DAOs. And every time there's something like this that happens, it's not like strictly speaking a massive deal, but I think it does sort of chip away this idea of decentralization that crypto is supposed to be so yeah i just think it's kind of a black mark overall yeah not not necessarily saying that this is the case at all but uh in this particular situation but i, I do think that it does kind of like bait the question of what happens when a protocol is done and like it's built it's complete we're not going to be changing it anymore like what do you do with the treasury that people are sitting on at that point and I think ultimately what should happen is that it should be value that is delivered back to the community, back to the users of the protocol in some way, shape or form. But, uh, yeah, I mean, in this case, obviously not happening. Also, like, I don't even know what Aragon is at this point, you know, they, they have a massive treasury, but also not a ton of product. Um, and so, yeah, it, I, th I think it, this situation is very different, but being able to have like the protocol being finished and then being able to deliver that value back to users, I think is an important step in, in sufficient decentralization. Hmm. So let me just make sure I understand this correctly. So before this, the DAO funds, so that, so basically the argument is that Aragon did a bad job of establishing value for the ANT token, which is their governance token. The ANT fell below the treasury value. Arca came in, bought a bunch of tokens, started, then wrapped the tokens in a very quick amount of time, gave them voting rights. They voted for pro-rata distribution of the treasury back to token holders so that they could make some money. And then rather than doing that, like following the actual governance vote, uh, Aragon said that they were getting 51% attacked and changed it so that DAO were no longer by the DAO, but now governed by a grants program. Is that... That's right. Like at the time yeah. of vote, I think Aragon was like 120 million and they had 200 million of, of non stable or non uh, native network assets in the treasury. 
And so like there was this ARB if you could get it all returned. But if you've ever done governance or ever spent time in any of these DAOs, it, it's very clear to you that there's kind of two phases of governance. One is snapshot. Uh, and snapshot is not it's like snapshots not connected to a smart contract. Snapshot's more of like a polling mechanism. And then you need someone with a multi-sig or I guess in this case, someone who had unilateral control over all the assets to like go do something. Hmm. So yeah, I mean, the corporate to be, you know, just got hosed here. Like, but also like, should you have known that? Probably. Yeah. Well, I think you're trying to apply the, the activist investing model to, to crypto, right? Like what, what's the activist model in a nutshell? And you take a company that has great products, a lot of, a lot of use, like a lot of customers, huge TAM, passionate audience and community and like user base, usually cash flow positive, all good things, all green checks. The X would be misaligned management or misaligned employees. Well, like, that's what you had with it. That's what it seems like you have with it. <clears throat> I, I'd actually say, you know, activist investing. Yes, for sure. This is more of like the classic Warren Buffett, uh, yeah. investing where, you know, his, his classic line is like, I'm not trying to find, you know, like, uh, solid companies that are that are trading at reasonable prices like i'm trying to find like cigarette butts that people have already literally thrown to the gutter but there's still like a couple of puffs left in them you know things that are trading below their their residual value things that are trading below their cash value but the the leap here is that you have the assumption that you're going to be able to take that purchase of these assets the anti-token in this case for 120 million in value and be able to recover 200 million in value and, and I think that's Vance's point, which I totally agree with. It's like anyone who's experienced in any of these decentralized governance mechanisms, you're not going to be able to like, just like flip a switch and turn over like, all right, give me the money now. No, that's not how this works. No, you're uh, on court. Like you give me the money still no. Like this is not, this is just, these things are honeypots for trad five people. I feel like, cause it looked, it feels exactly like traditional finance, but it's yeah. not. So what's happening with Aragon now? So now they took back control and they're they're fine. I, I wouldn't say they're fine. I would say there's like pending lawsuits, but like it's a Swiss registered utility token. So like pack your bags, you're going to Switzerland. Yeah. And Here, here's why this is going to be bad for them as well. Is uh, you you only get like Mike and I've been talking about this a lot actually with Bitcoin, which is like now that Bitcoin's venturing into like DeFi on Bitcoin and things like that, it's actually hurting the brand i think because you kind of only get as a company like one maybe two words to describe your brand um and you have to like rally a community around that like that word and that ethos and if aragon isn't willing to operate as a as a real dao here their mission and like their values are completely killed which kills like that that is their customer set you know yeah I would say they lost track of like who their customers were a long time ago. Like Aragon court doesn't really work. Like Aragon, the DAO governance framework is like, okay, not great. How does it all connect to a token? Extremely unclear. Maybe some of these things shouldn't have a token, but you know, like this is, I, yeah. Yes. Yeah. This, doesn't is make sense. this is a bummer to me. Cause like if Aragon didn't have a token, Aragon could have just been a sick SaaS company. Where they just built yeah. really good products and just monitor, charge people twenty k a year, increased it as the seats went up, and boom, called it a. As so I was just a note here, I was actually wrong. I just assumed most of their treasury would be in their native token, but they actually did a much better yeah. job than most DAOs in diversifying. So, 
I would have I would have loved if USDC and ETH were flipped here, but I mean this is this is like a top five percent of bad treasury management. Like when I know about yep. These are ideas that come to people in bear markets when they're like, ooh, we should like go after this person and get their money because like they're not spending it wisely. And like it kind of never seems to work. I guess like Rook Dow kind of worked in in this same vein. That was like the success case. But but why is that wrong? Vance, why is that wrong? The the token market cap is 110 million and their treasure is 185 million. So if you're like it's a cult that's a huge mismatch there. Sure. Your your upside is you make, you know. 1x your downside is you lose everything 1x you know like there's no asymmetry there and like chances are you're gonna get rugged and the amount of people that have like pitched like tezos has fought or like i think it's like two or three billion dollars of their treasury now like let's go get them it's like i'll see you when you get back you know i'm i'm just gonna like buy eth and chill like it, it doesn't feel like that's the best use of your time and there's like things that feel like work when you invest, like when you're like doing things, and then there's just like things that don't, where you're just like holding and being patient. It feels like people just wanted to do some work here, and it didn't really pan out. Well, and, and it stems from the fact that you have all these activist investors in in TradFi, you have the Warren Buffett investment standards in TradFi, and people want to replicate that and be those things in Web three. And because of that, it's sort of like this imposter syndrome of, oh, I want to be able to go off and like extract value from like 125 to 185 and it just doesn't work the same way uh and so yeah i think yeah we've seen this a number of times like we, we know a number of investors who have the same mentality and have the same strategy uh but frankly i haven't seen a repeatable process that works by the way did you see that hindenburg's latest target is actually um uh carl like <laughs> i don't know oh yeah crazy story like it's it doesn't look good for for uh Carl, can you, what's the, I haven't looked at this. What is, what's going on? So there's basically allegations of him inflating asset values, uh, that are liquid. And there's pretty good evidence to suggest that that's probably happening. Um, Carl owns 85% of the shares and, and his son owns 85% of the shares of Carl icon company. I forget what it's called. Maybe it's just called icon enterprises on enterprises. And he's pledged 65% of the 85% as personal margin loans. Now, if I told you this story, what did I remind you of? Did I remove <laughs> marking up liquid assets, paying quarterly dividends that people have advised him to not do, allegedly colluding with Jeffries, which is an investment bank, to sell these shares to retail, and then taking oh out God. massive personal margin loans. Like, <sighs> You know, he's obviously like a legend and, and uh, I'm sure he would say terrible things about crypto if he had the chance, but like, what are you doing? What, like, what, what's, uh, what, like, what is the most plausible solution for this or, you know, answer for all of these questions. And, uh, you know, he hasn't put at any, you know, answers to the questions that Hindenburg asked and he's just continuing to increase his pledges of shares against these margin loans. And the things that he will not disclose are what are the terms of the loans? What's the liquidation price? What's the loan to value? You know, how much debt have you pulled out of this thing? And, oh, the other interesting part is, so he pays out this massive 2% dividend per quarter, but he doesn't pay it to himself. He takes his dividend in paid in kind shares. Hmm. Yeah, I saw that. So like, like think of, think of this as like, um, you know, like if he were to take the dividend in cash, he would dilute everybody else's dividend. So he doesn't do that. 
Instead, what he does is he just takes more shares, pledges them as margin loans, and like it all works <laughs> in this circular way. Watch on, watch off. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's no problem, uh, but I, I I just like I don't know. It makes it makes me wonder how many times other people have run this same scheme because you know the implicate right if you're obviously people who listen to this podcast are familiar with the ftt scheme that he was pulling and you could basically replace ftd with ftt with shares of uh, icon enterprises and uh jeffries with genesis and you'd be right there right with the exact same analogy and i don't know it just i didn't realize i was like when i've kind of put that together with what he was doing with what F- sbf was doing i was like oh that's actually it was kind of clever but maybe he was just doing running the playbook that millions of you know uh billionaires have run before i don't know um the the answer is a lot a lot of people have run this playbook before ah cool gotta imagine bill ackman's pretty hyped right now oh <laughs> yeah he was he was retweeting hindenburg and all that stuff and he's sitting in his apartment I'm like let's fucking go yeah i bet that guy's so fired up right now oh, oh my one of the most epic moments of financial media ever was when uh ackman went on cnbc and then icon joins the call and they're duking it out on cnbc well, isn't that, is that over herbalife or something yeah herbalife yeah yeah exactly yeah. torment wow. art and then bill ackman made a documentary still on netflix yeah i don't remember that well Not all that good honestly yeah yeah you know what it just reminds me of and then uh, he did a two-hour uh two-hour pitch to investors about why why it was a ponzi's era pyramid scheme and then he asked for questions. A bunch of questions went up, and he called on his dad first, who had placed a question in the audience. Jesus, <laughs> I was like, oh, this is not anybody else want to call their dad? <laughs> <laughs> wow, you can't make this stuff up. You know, what? I uh, so just you know don't want to detour too far from here, but uh, Drucker Miller did a great speech um, this week. You can look it up, and he had this line. It's just it's resonated with me having been in crypto now for. Um, you know whatever five years but it's like yeah when people when there's zero interest rates people just make really dumb decisions when there are zero percent interest rates for 11 years people make really dumb decisions and i don't know if it's carl icon but i do think everything that happened in crypto is probably a preview for the real show which is going to be trad five and we'll figure out some some people are definitely swimming naked i I feel like we're i feel like we're further in the process of crypto kind of getting worked and then cleaning itself up like we're we're still Same. kind of on cleanup duty for the past two years like we're distributing celsius voyager BlockFi, genesis will get resolved one way or the other this also feels like the bear market where everybody gets their coins back from like you know mount gox and the pro or like get gets their coin back meaning like you know the u.s government is selling it on coinbase but you know i think there's a good deal of mopping up what we still have to do i feel like the tradfi space is is uh we haven't even had like the you know the spillage yet. It's just like everything is so shaky and frenzied that if our yeah. if our icon is is taking it in in the teeth, like he's supposed yeah. to be you know the, the just, he's supposed to be the guy who's like responsible, basically. It's not, <laughs> not even the first one. Yeah, Tradfi has yet to hit their Luna moment, and and you know the other thing that happened this year, or sorry, this week last year is Luna. Like it has officially been. 12 months since yeah since everything started happening uh it, and it was here day that it happened michael and i were at a wedding i gave the best man speech and then <laughs> literally two hours later we were like "Ooh, it's it's all falling apart isn't it 
That yeah. was terrible. That was nuts. Doe was supposed to, this was around the same time as Permissionless last year. And Doe was yep. supposed to speak. Yeah. They they actually sent out a whole bunch of swag, uh Terra swag. Um they had someone come by real quick and grab all of that, but not quick enough because I got a t shirt. <laughs> no, yeah. yeah. Pretty <laughs> commemorative t shirt. Commemorative t shirt, yeah. Um I would love to get your guys' thoughts, just uh, moving it back to crypto here. There are a couple of uh, big proposals that went live this week on Arbitrum and Uniswap. And I'd love to start with the Arbitrum one. So this was proposed uh, yesterday, so May 10th. Uh, but the proposal is the distribution of DAO revenue to ARB token holders. Um, just to read you kind of the high-level TLDR, the objective is to distribute a portion of the accumulated revenue from the Arbitrum DAO to ARB token holders. You know, this will align community incentives and give ARB a purpose beyond a, quote, worthless governance token. Love that they included that there. As stated in recent tweets from Arbitrum, the DAO has accumulated roughly 3,352 ETH in revenue from L2 uh, base and surplus fees. Distribution of revenue will be proportionate to the amount of ARB tokens delegated by each holder. So the benefits basically that they outline are distributing DAO revenue to ARB token holders will align community incentives and create a more engaged and committed user base. And it will give, yeah give ARB this purpose. So I guess the disclosure that we have to caveat here is that Blockworks is a, a pretty big delegate uh, for Arbitrum. So no opinions given here are indicative of, of anything. Yeah, caveat there. But uh, framework guys, what do you guys, and what's your what's your sort of take here? Feels like the Overton window is moving for turning on fee switches or sharing fees generally, um, which I think is really positive. Like, I think if we get into the next bull run and we don't have real economics flowing, at least to the DAO, preferably like to the token itself, yeah. I think we're going to look pretty silly. Like there has to be an end date in terms of when this happens. Um, and I think it underscores just like how, what the temperature is of entrepreneurs in the US. Like they're still willing to launch tokens. They're still willing to do things like turning on fee switches. And, you know, maybe that's, they feel like they're decentralized enough or they feel like the protocol is finished and they can kind of call it just like this neutral, you know, third party layer. Um, but I think it's positive in terms of like reading the room and understanding that the entrepreneurs that are still here are going to die on this hill, either in this country or, or a different one and figure out how to make these protocols um, self-sustaining. And like, it's not, you have to squint to see it, but like, at one point, ETH was probably in like a similar position, like the transition of proof of work to proof of stake, you know, giving back economics to the network. Like eventually they were just decentralized enough to do it. And I think people are just saying like, why are we not as centralized as they are? And and maybe they aren't in practice, but like they're starting to make arguments that put them in that, which I think is important. Yep. <clears throat> um, the, the only thing that I would add is that, you know, in these sub markets where you have a number of different players that are going after the exact same models, the exact same, you know, consumers, uh, users of these protocols, uh, imagine that you're one of those competitors and the other people are able to do this, whereas you are not. It's sort of like, imagine you're a centralized provider versus a decentralized opportunity where there's token incentives and there's token models. Uh, that incentivize usage and incentivize people to come to your platform. It's sort of like, this is a level of competition that if you don't have it, you're not going to be able to compete and you're just going to get, you know, 
bulldozed by everybody else who's able to do this. Um, so I, ultimately, I, I completely agree. I think a lot of what is going to change, the, the stuff that is going to change is like, we're going to have a model probably by the end of this year as to how this stuff can work. Um, and there's a lot of movement on Capitol Hill right now to be able to have a, a framework uh, to be able to uh, build these things in in this way um, in the U.S. and and you know not under the ire of uh, you know regulatory regulatory pressure. Um, and so yeah, I think generally like this is going to be like the mainstay of what these future decentralized networks become. Hmm. Um. I hear, I hear what you guys are saying. I think I've got a little little pushback, which is, you know, the way I sort of think about this is it's a capital allocation question. And for me, like usually when you talk about dividends or share buybacks or something like that, the implication is I don't have a better use for this capital. Like I couldn't put this to work in some way, which would lead to more value creation in the equity or the token of the project. Uh, so any sort of return to token holders that just doesn't make sense to me at this stage i guess that's an open question vance your point is are these protocols done but i just i have to imagine that's their job right if you're on the arbitrum team like you're supposed to be allocating capital and creating value that's going to lead to the appreciation of arb the token which i feel like is the most that's got to be the most productive use of capital for for a project at this stage the the other thing i would like maybe this the other way I kind of think about it is once you start to return capital to token holders, you can't really stop, right? It's the same way that investors become super accustomed to a dividend. Like there was a famous, like it was GE, right? That was super famous for their dividend. It was like as good as gold. And yeah, it did really good stuff for GE stock. A lot of people bought it for that dividend. But later, once they had, you know, problems or there were better uses for that capital, maybe they didn't have the option to take it away because so much of the holder base of that stock was conditioned to expect the dividend. That was the reason why they were holding it. So I think the race in between these L2s is wildly competitive. And if it were me, I would be trying to find uses for that capital instead of giving it away back to token holders at this stage. Literally Vance and I were having this conversation this week as to like, what does value accrual look like for these tokens? And like, how do you value these things going forward? I, I, part of me agrees that like, okay, yes, using all the different TradFi analogies, like dividends, share buybacks, whatever it is, you can look at them the same way. You can't take away a dividend because it looked negative. You can't, right. you know, put the genie back in the bottle once it happens. The, the thing that I frankly just like don't necessarily think is, is congruent here is I don't think any of these things, I don't think any of these tokens are valued based on fundamentals. So when you, when you're talking about like, okay, is the profit referring to the treasury? And like, are we valuing this thing on like price to sales or price to earnings? Or, you know, is the share buyback that's driving? I think all of the stuff is valued based on flows, which is, you know, who is buying, who is selling. And if you can, if you can inject yourself into the flows question, there's actually a huge amount of, you know, undetermined value that you can drive for the token itself, because it's not, it's not like if maker was to go off and like double their revenue and therefore double the share buyback and burn that they would be valued twice as much on a token value perspective. 
maybe some people would look at it and they'd be able to say, okay, well, yeah, like we can assume this and that, but it, it really comes down to what are the flows of the token itself? What's supply and demand and who is buying and who is selling? So I, I generally think like if you have a bunch of cash flow that's flowing to the token, having a token economic model that enables additional buying or additional, you know, purchasing of the token itself from the treasury, maybe it's redistribu redistribution of that token to the shareholders, or, or maybe it's redistribution of the token to the people that are staking it, whatever those models might be, like that, that becomes super valuable. But we really have yet to see that because right now the only asset that is earning this much revenue is, is ETH. And, and, you know, they burn part of, part of the fees, but nobody else has hit that scale. So I, I hear you on that, I th but I think, you know, so, okay, a P&L might not be appropriate for something like that. And yeah, these things aren't trading based on price to sales or price to earnings or any other metric like that. But my counter to you would be neither is basically any other early stage startup, right? Like a SaaS, an early stage SaaS company, you know, investors aren't necessarily underwriting that based on their P&L or cash flow, right? There are certain metrics that you would look at, right? It would be like CAC and LTV and churn and growth rate and all that sort of stuff. Like that goes into the valuation. I feel like we might just be at too early of a stage of crypto where those, like what determines flows? You know, what what is the leading indicator for flows? I, I actually disagree. I mean, I, as soon as you move past the series A, people are valuing this thing based off of, you know, what is your price to revenue? What is your, you know, potential for profit? Like you assume all these things. You don't ask those questions because they don't have any earnings. They don't have any like, you know, major EBITDA revenue multiples, whatever it is, it, uh, like that stuff doesn't exist for a Series B company, but it it should um, because that's what people but, are valuing. But then, Michael, wouldn't you wouldn't you assume then that like crypto has probably just been to it's been in the seed in the Series A phase, and like there's a there's a decent likelihood that in the next cycle, as more professional investors continue coming into crypto, they will start to look at Arbitrum and not just look at the flows, but they'll look at Arbitrum and say, okay, you're doing about. 100 million in annualized revenue. You've got like 30 to 40% margins after, after the, you know, the call data costs. Uh, after, you know, 4844, you're going to probably go up to like 90% margins. Okay. Like that, that's a pretty exciting business here. Um, and this start, you start valuing things on that. You would assume that, but these are like the most efficient, inefficient markets that we've ever seen. And uh, yeah, they're doing, they're going to get, they're going to get more efficient over time, but I, I don't think people are going to start valuing these things. Like, Think of all the infrastructure, the financial infrastructure that exists around like even startups, but also just like publicly traded stocks. We're not valuing these things and like trading these things uh, based off of those fundamentals. I, I, have, a, I have a slightly different perspective. Um, I think like we, we've gone from like no valuation framework to like there was one that was like TVL divided by market cap that was just like insane and like meant nothing. And now like you're more in like the price to sales land. But like what the gross margins are, how much goes to the Dow, is the fee switch even turned on? Like people don't seem to be thinking about that. Um, but I think like we're trending towards like a more efficient marketplace. And I think the real point is like once you have flows that confirm, you know, these metrics, like you're going to have more of a rational valuation framework. Like imagine if Uniswap was buying back the token. Imagine if, you know, any of the like maker does it right now and it trades you know at a pretty tight range of like 20 to 30 priced earnings um i think we're generally going to get there and I, I think you also need to like potentially come up with a new valuation framework 
Um, and we've taken a couple shots at that, but I think mostly what you need is like, you usually have people who are passive buyers of stocks or commodities or bonds that are trading things based on, you know, if it gets this cheap or this expensive, if I'm going to do this or that, you don't really have that in crypto. Having the structural flow, I think is kind of something that you're going to need to have if you're a serious project, um, you know, coming into the next run. That, that's at least my thoughts. Yep. I agree with that. I think a lot of it has to do with the investor base. And, you know, in TradFi markets, they do have these like ranges that they look for, for PE multiples and that kind of thing. And if it goes below a certain multiple or something, it'd be kind of, you just, a bunch more people will buy kind of thing. I don't think crypto is still mostly retail. I just don't think people are thinking like that. So I, I mean, not only just like ranges, they have indexes where yeah. like, if you're a part of this or a part of that, or like you hit this threshold, literally the index will have to buy you. Yeah. Like that, that type of stuff. Uh, that's what I mean by the infrastructure just does, doesn't exist right now. So like, we don't even know, like how many retail investors in a given token, like have ever been to tokenterminal.com or like DeFi Lama to actually understand like what these, what these metrics are probably yeah, like 15% yeah. or, or block producers. Yeah. Friend, friend. <laughs> and enter random, enter random site here, but, <laughs> but you know, like what is that percentage? It's probably less than 50. Definitely less. It's probably less than like 0.5. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think so too. Valora is the ultimate wallet for exploring the Cello ecosystem. Easily access over 50 crypto assets and 30 dApps for swapping, sending, and growing your crypto, all from your mobile phone. If you want to see real-world use cases for crypto, Valora's dApps page is the easiest way to access a growing list of the latest DeFi and ReFi applications. Dapps like JumpTask come to mind. JumpTask is a Web3 gig marketplace that connects over 2 million micro freelancers to worldwide earning opportunities. With JumpTask, you can earn crypto by completing tasks, answering surveys, or even sharing internet. Then simply withdraw to your Valora wallet to send, swap, collect, and grow your portfolio. Download the app and start exploring today at valoraapp.com forward slash empire. That's Valora app.com forward slash empire let's talk about uniswaps v switch i mean is how do you guys uh so this week gfx proposed uh turning on the v switch um i don't know if you guys took a look at it i can give an overview but yeah how do, how do you guys feel about that one 60 million dollars in six month revenue you know like probably a little bit more than that uh in in a bull market like this is something that you know, when things really get going is probably generating like mid nine figures of, of revenue. That's like pretty impressive in terms of, you know, like you're not investing in a startup for like, what, what are they making today? It's like kind of where, where things are going to go. And, and it feels like that's kind of like really the, like the bar for success for these dApps going forward is like, can you generate nine figures of, of revenue per year, like mid nine figures. And I think there's like a few that can get there. Um, you just swap certainly one of them. I guess my question on this is like, what's going on in the background with the DAO? Like we've heard, you know, different things about like different jurisdictions that you can do this in and maybe it's more favorable. Like, is this the foundation that's leading it? Um, like that's definitely a question. The other thing that stood out is just like how reasonable their fees are compared to Coinbase and, and I guess less so Binance. Oh yeah. It, it's like pretty cheap and the, and the maker fees are negative and the taker fees are, are less than, you know, the, the centralized exchanges. It's not surprising that they're doing more volume in these, in these places. Uh, the Uniswap is doing more, 
volume than Coinbase um, on a frequent basis. Like it, it just appears to have significant product market fit. Vance, could you explain how these maker fees are negative? Um, so, I mean, they're just incentivizing people to effectively add liquidity to the pool. Um, yeah. And the taker, like, this may not mean a, a ton, but uh, so if you are uh, taking a limit order on on centralized exchanges, um, you're usually given, or you're, if you make a limit order, you're usually given a little bit less of a fee than you would if you just sold it all at market. And this is kind of like that idea taken to extreme where like, you know, like you're charged negative fees on making limit orders, but if you're just taking random liquidity, like it's going to cost you, um, which is probably the right model. It, like just looking at Coinbase's fees, they just seem, you know, like, what is it? Like if you scroll up a little bit, 40 basis points for things under $10,000, like that's, and 60 basis points if you're the maker, it, like that's pretty crazy. Uniswap has the inverse fee structure of that, where the makers are negative and the takers are significantly lower. But, but that, that that's sort of a misnomer, right? Because like, who is a maker on Uniswap? It's a liquidity provider. Yeah. And the the one thing about you know providing liquidity on Uniswap is uh, you also are affected by impermanent loss. So like, while while I understand like they want to represent these things as negative, I'm not sure that that's like a fair representation. Yeah, like we don't provide liquidity in uni v3 for a reason like we found that it's very easy to get picked off it's very hard to provide liquidity profitably and so i think the real litmus test at the end of the day is like what do the lps think and there's a lot of stale liquidity they're in these things kind of like uninformed retail just getting hit um so i think over the long long term it's not about like what are these fees uh for you know the people who are swapping it's like are your liquidity providers making money after impermanent loss and like we've had multiple portfolio companies try to build options, vaults, derivatives, things like that. A lot of the impediment to them doing it is the uni B3 architecture with regards to, you know, you as a provider. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, it's a super interesting point. And I think it connects with, uh, whenever we were talking about blend, this kind of key assumption, like look, they spell this right out here. The LPs making the most money up Uniswap are not retail traders. They're professional market makers. just like the ones seen on traditional exchanges. So I kind of do think you're seeing the evolution in just market structure for some of these uh, DEXs. And basically, they're very comfortable assuming that the people that are the entities that will be providing liquidity into the future are not retail. It's not retail. It's professional hedge funds and market makers. And yep. I broadly think that's the right assumption. I'm, I'm super interested. I'm kind of borrowing actually from a framework that Miles, from uh, who's been on the show, that Reverie has. Yep. But I give you, if you think about this, most of these protocols is kind of two-sided marketplaces. A uh, pretty interesting indicator to pay attention to is the amount of uh, pricing power that these protocols have over their supply side. In this case, it'll just be super interesting to see, yeah, basically how the LPs uh, how the LPs interact and if it migrates somewhere else, like Curve or something like that. Like to use the analogy of something like Airbnb, which is also a two-sided marketplace where the band is users and the supply side is homes. If Airbnb jacks their fees up or like how many people stop supplying their home for people to stay in. And if they jack their fees up and nobody stops supplying their homes, then Airbnb's got a pretty good business. Um, but if they like move their fee at all and they lose a whole bunch of their supply, then, you know, that's something that you'd want to pay attention to. So Uniswap's been talking about this fee switch for a while. And this, this proposal gets into some of the technical. It's not a technically easy thing to do, 
actually. Uh, especially for V3, it's kind of tough. But And they're, they're just, FYI, they're testing it out on Polygon first as well. V3 on Polygon, which I think is smart because the stakes are just a little lower. There's lower TVO and volume up there. So I just kind of want to see what happens at this point, you know? Um, I just want to see what happens. Do you think a bunch of liquidity will migrate off of Uniswap? At some point, yeah. Or like, we won't be the source of, of, you know, retail flow. That would be another option. I think like where Uniswap does really well are like long tail Pepe style coins where Uniswap doesn't do as well or like the blue chip, you know, flow that, and frankly, like that's where their fees are generally the highest as well. Yeah. So I don't know. I like it's the landscape's just going to change with regards to liquidity venues over the next few years. And I think the first step is getting the money into the DAO. The second step is getting the money to the tokens. Um, and like really the thing that Uniswap does not have is like a really strong community that can help them reason through all these issues. And it feels like that's going to be just like super important at some point, but probably not immediately. Uh, I agree with that. Um, Actually, do you want to talk about, there was some, uh, or does anyone else have any more comments on the P-Switch for Uniswap? No. This is also just, uh, cause I know there's been, there's been a whole bunch of different proposals for this over the years. And sometimes it seems like they're picking up steam and then they kind of end up dying. But, uh, GFX labs, like Getty Hill, they're like pretty serious people and deeply in the weeds on Uniswap. I feel like this feels, um, like it actually might have some legs. I know we've seen it before, but I'll be very curious to see, you know, how this plays out over the coming weeks and months. What's quorum on on a vote like this? Like, what what does it take? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not actually sure. No, no idea. Usually, it's like five or like in in some DAOs we're involved in. It's like point five percent. I would imagine something like this is probably like more of like five percent. But. Yeah. You're going to need a lot of tokens to get this through. It's, it's just my yeah. There are there are lots of complications as well. So one of the big one of the big hurdles that has made this not get over the finish line is just tax and legal concerns. And GFX basically has this disclaimer where, look, this is kind of a treasury issue. I'm I'm paraphrasing here, so they don't have a great solution for that. But yeah, I mean, I have no idea how that would work from a tax standpoint. If the DAO itself starts accruing revenue, I mean, they don't. What's the legal entity that ends up paying the tax? This is the tricky part. Like, if you can do it at all, it's best to not have it go to a DAO. You should just have it go straight to the tokens. Cause, like, people who get the money, like, you should figure that out or do like a buy and burn where there is no revenue accruing. It's just like buy pressure and then deletion of supply. Um, but you know, th- these are complex questions and nobody has answers for them. Well, I, I think it's also exceedingly difficult when you're a U.S. company based in the United States right. with U.S. persons and that is the DAO that you're going forward with. That being said, I think that, and, and who knows exactly what's going to come out, but it talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Um, it seems like there's going to be some proposal that goes forward in the next couple of months for you know things like how a commodity how a security can become a commodity what actually means decentralized uh, or sufficiently decentralized 
Like the, there, there will be a lot of answers to these questions in the United States, it seems. Um, and we'll see whether or not, you know, that house proposal goes through and, and gets ratified by the Senate and, or voted on by the Senate. But I, I do think that it's also, you know, one hand, if not both hands tied behind your back while you're trying to operate from the U S. Hmm. What about on the, um, on the regulatory side with like how you guys treat governance tokens, if you owned Uniswap tokens, I don't know if you do or don't, but like if you owned uh, Uniswap tokens and this went forward, would you feel comfortable voting on this in today's regulatory, uh, like world, or would you just, you, you wouldn't touch that? What we do with governance is, uh, we have a program where we delegate to a number of different entities and have them, you know, vote on our behalf. Uh, so the, yeah, that, that's how we you know operate within uh, governance. And do you trust them to vote on your behalf, or do you tell them how you, you want? We do not tell them anything. Okay. Uh, usually, most of these most of these entities are like blockchain clubs at universities, um, and they can vote on you know however they see fit. Vance didn't like that question so much that he muted and turned off his camera. I haven't seen that one in a while. <laughs> this is a good time for me to uh call out that we are hiring a podcast producer uh on the crypto side so if you are uh <laughs> yeah garrett was like do not forget do not forget i totally forgot to call that out so uh, um we are, we're hiring a new uh a podcast producer if you if you have a very deep understanding of crypto uh DeFi, nfts all that kind of fun stuff um come join us you are not the one editing the shows on the video and audio side you are the one kind of like overseeing a show so you'll like help us source and schedule guests you plan and research episodes you lay up some good content so that michael can know what to say uh because you know tough to get this stuff off the noggin uh yeah you craft the content post-production all that kind of fun stuff so um yeah if that's you slide through the dms actually don't do that go on our careers page and, and apply let's talk about uh everyone's favorite um mev bot jared from subway this is a great thread for, I just thought it was a cool, I'm not sure if folks actually uh, saw this thread, but Robert Miller um, kind of shared some light on the alpha. So I'll actually just, I'll just share my screen here and walk people through it. Uh, but I think it's just kind of a cool case study of how these MEV bots actually work in practice. So basically Jared, they he's sort of famous or this bot is sort of famous for making a whole bunch of money sandwiching traders on Pepe, the meme coin. And Basically, the the three bits of alpha that that Robert walked us through was they the way they do their inventory is very different from other from other bots. So if you think about a sandwich, depending on the two, there are two assets that are required for a sandwich, and it kind of requires that you start in one asset. So ETH is sort of the front run, then you move into the meme coin Pepe, and then you back run back into ETH. But Jared actually takes a very different approach um, and starts with he's cut a whole bunch of supply of Pepe, the token, and then he goes back into ETH and then back into Pepe, and there's just much less competition. The reason why more bots don't do that is just because warehousing becomes very difficult. You don't, if you're, if you think of your balance sheet there, you don't really want to hold a whole bunch of your assets in something that's as volatile as something like Pepe, because any profits that you get from the sandwiching could be offset by declines from the, the meme coin basically failing. But I guess Jared from Subway is extremely good at sniping. Um, and he actually bought the coin Pepe just 10 minutes after it was deployed. Just a little tinfoil hattie right there. 
but that's how he that's how he gets his his warehouse of uh or his inventory and then um he kind of does this interesting strategy of mega sandwiching so he basically you know puts more trades into the sandwich than just a one 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 so it's kind of an interest i don't know if you guys had any takeaways but i thought it was just a cool sort of inside look at how some of these mev bots work i mean it, it feels like like we saw jane street stop doing mev trading i think like two or three weeks ago and like these strategies feel very much in the gray area of like is this profitable trading or is this something else uh kind of like avi eisenberg style (laughs) um yeah i mean it's not surprising to see like the big guys pull out of this specifically and like these like jared from subway style characters start to emerge but i I think it just kind of is proof positive that at a certain level of economic activity you see turn on and then the mev is a substantial portion of fees like i i forget how much he spent in the in the few days where he was really going for it but it was a substantial part of the the mev burn that happened uh via uh 1559 but i don't know these are all good signs like mev's turning back on these crazy coins are turning back on pretty easy as an eth validator to just sit there and collect uh collect your winnings yeah that's that's what i was going to say it's just that maybe less the meb side but just the level of activity and engagement on pepe itself just makes me feel like we're starting to see the green shoots of what this bear market is and, and moving past it and you know meb is going to be a, a a benefactor for all of that so and, and to Vance's point i think it's very difficult to be doing that um as an institution and and necessarily from the united states so you're going to start to see more Jareds from Subways, less Jane Street. I think it's I think it's a tough um, the builder market in general is one that's sort of opaque and rule of law. You know, up till this point hasn't necessarily been applied to MEV. The regulators are there's some evidence that they're kind of aware of it, but they're not paying a lot of attention now. There was a great thread from this account uh, AI something. I'll get the I'll get the name, but basically questioning whether or not, you know, if you were a builder that had access to essentially order flow and you were trading using that information, does that constitute material non-public information, MNPI, and then is it insider trading? And you could make, you could certainly make a case for it. And my guess for something like Jane Street, and if you look at, you can check Relay Scan. they have one of the most active and successful builders, but they haven't won like anything in the past week. And I would guess some compliance or legal or someone over there has said, hey guys, we could be at risk here. It's probably not mm-hmm. worth it. I doubt they pull out of the builder market in general, but they probably have to retool some of their strategies. Okay. I, I, <clears throat> the other thing I would say is like, this stuff is like water. If you block one of it, like one direction of it, it's just going to flow somewhere else. Yeah. And and it's not like, you know, the, the people that are, you know, searching are are just gonna like oh that's it we're game up we're moving on and nobody else is gonna pick up where they left off and continue forward like someone will the value will be there it'll just have to you know be somewhere that is a more friendly jurisdiction the um the e-scaling roadmap uh maybe smarter people than me could push back on this idea but i think sort of implicitly requires the presence of larger more sophisticated builders 
think Swab is trying to get ahead of this with their ability to decentralize block building to some extent. But even right, a sequencer right now is the combination of like, it's a combined builder and proposer is what we've separated on ETH main chain. But especially as you have a proliferation of different L2s and then eventually you get, maybe it's decentralized sequencers, maybe it's shared sequencers. There's still just dumb pipes that do the sequencing. You need a builder that understands state to stand in front of that. And yep. builders, the more order flow that you see, the more transactions that you have access to, the better you'll be at winning blocks. So it's going to happen in Cosmos. I think it's going to happen in ETH L2s as well. Like you're going to have big builders. So I, I just, I doubt Jane Street is going to pull out permanently. I think they're just going to reassess. Well, all the, all like the, I saw some like really silly liquidity chart, which was fake. By the way, I don't know if like people. I saw a bunch of people retweeting it. I was like, mathematically, there's no way that this is possible. But like, I got a this far where it was like there used to be like thirty thousand BTC liquidity within plus or minus two percent, and now it's like one Bitcoin. It's like, okay, well, is that true? Like, I don't have to do the math to know that that's unrealistic. But like, it just spread like wildfire, and then like the last day of comments, all I heard on Twitter was like low liquidity watch out out there you know could could get crazy like all of my it's just like think for yourself uh, these people are not pulling out and if they do there's going to be crypto native market makers to step in which like frankly i would rather have i would rather have big crypto market crypto native market makers develop themselves than anything else like that that's kind of thing i'm still looking for is like Back in the day, you had like Alameda squaring off with like 3AC squaring off with like all the other crypto native market makers. It doesn't feel like there's like those like big people that are kind of like just going for it. I think getting the big TradFi market makers out probably paves some room for them to, to develop. That's I was about to say, <clears throat> I was about to say, I think there's a huge market opportunity right now to be that crypto native market maker that doesn't exist in, in the same way that Alameda... 3AC used to exist. <laughs> Maybe not Alameda, but um, like you know, I'm not talking. I'm not talking about committing fraud. I'm I'm just talking yeah. about making markets. I mean, it's it's literally just Wintermute at this point. Yeah. If you want to uh, nerd out, there are different. Um, there are some upstart market makers out there. I don't know how public they are, yeah. but. They, there are different models for market making. It's like my understanding is you kind of either market make on like Bitcoin and ETH, and that's a much more traditional model, or you kind of have this like token call option model of market making where you're given, yeah, some percentage of like Arbitrum per se, and you want to make market on that at a certain price. And it, it you know, your your allocation kind of ends up being something like that. But isn't that a model that eventually goes away? Like that's kind of yes. like an early... yes. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, yeah. that's not like a real scalable. No, no, I agree with that. Yeah. Should we wrap? Yeah. Yeah. I think we got to wrap. All right, guys. 